Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to continue the series that we started several weeks ago on biblical prosperity. And I'm going to start this morning in Psalm 35. I really want to um, go over some of the things that we taught last Sunday morning in a little bit more detail and a little bit more depth. So if you were here with us last Sunday morning, this may be a refresher service for you. But we rarely ever get anything the first time we hear it. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The important part of that verse is hearing and hearing. We can't ever hear the truth too much, can we? Psalm 35, verse 27. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Now, folks, I want you to notice that there's something we're supposed to say. David, prompted by the Holy Ghost, writing this psalm, is indicating that what we say has a lot to do with what we have. We know that's the, the system or the way that faith operates Faith is a matter of believing the Word of God in your heart and saying it with your mouth, no matter what you see or no matter what you feel. Now, the Bible also says some things concerning planting the Word in our heart and letting it grow and develop. And, of course, we know that's only done by speaking the Word of God, and it happens over a period of time. We also want to look at some things that the Old Testament tells us as types and shadows. Paul writing to the church said the things of the Old Testament, the things of the children of Israel and the way God dealt with them are given to us or recounted to us in Scripture as an example, not the fulfillment, but as an example of what God has for us and how God deals with his people. Now, we all know the story of Israel, how that they were brought out of bondage, the bondage of Egypt, with a mighty hand, there were ten plagues, well, really nine plagues, and uh, the death of the firstborn were the ten mighty acts that God brought against Egypt because Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. He finally came to the point, after the death of his own son, he finally came to the point where he turned Israel loose. But then he changed his mind and came after them with the intent of killing them. Israel was hemmed in on three sides. Behind them was the Red Sea. To either side of them were mountains that they couldn't flee through. And Pharaoh was coming up behind them with the intent and the purpose of killing, out, killing all the, the people of Israel. You remember the story how that God delivered Israel Moses cried out to God, told the people, be still, see the salvation of God. God's not going to leave you here. He's not going to let you be killed. That would certainly wouldn't make sense why he would perform his mighty works in Egypt for them to be released if he was just going to let them die at the edge of the Red Sea. So Moses told the people, calm down, don't be afraid, God will see you through. And then he turns to God, and God rebukes him. He said, what are you crying out to me for? Now, folks, the situation that Moses is in seems to me to be the perfect situation to cry out to the Lord. But there's a truth here that he's trying to get across. 
there's a truth that God wants not only Moses to know, but us to know too. He rebukes Moses and he said, why are you crying out to me? Stretch your hand out, stretch your rod out over the waters and they'll part. See, the rod was the sign of God's power that was given to his people, Israel, specifically to Moses, for him to effect a deliverance according to the will of God. But God wants us to handle the power. He doesn't want us to pray for power. He wants us to handle the power. And so Moses did what God said, and the Red Sea parted. And they went over on dry ground. Pharaoh's army tried to chase after him, or did chase after him, into the Red Sea, and the waters came together again and drowned the whole bunch. The greatest military force on the face of the earth at that time was destroyed because one man, Moses, operated in faith according to the will of God and parted the Red Sea. Now, we know that the children of Israel suffered many things. They came to the place where, to the edge of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And through unbelief, a refusal to believe what God had said to be true, they failed to go in and take the promised land. So they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness as a punishment for their unbelief. And then they come back around to the same place again, the edge of Canaan land. And this time, they went in to take possession of the land. Now, the book of Deuteronomy is primarily a farewell address from Moses to the children of Israel. Moses couldn't go into the promised land because he had... Uh, well, he disobeyed God in one of the things that God would have him to do. First time Israel came to a place where there was no water, God told Moses to strike a certain rock in the sight of everybody, and water came forth in great abundance that provided for not only the millions of people of the children of Israel, but also the animals and all the, the beasts that they had with them. But then later on, some years later, they come back around to a place where they're without water. And God said to Moses, speak to the rock and the water will come forth. The first time Moses struck the rock, that was a type of Jesus being smitten of God for the benefit of the people, for our salvation. The second time when Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, it was a, a type or an example of the way that we, under the new covenant, would take hold of the promises of God and that is by believing in our heart and saying with our mouths. Moses was mad at the people, however, and so he struck the rock the second time. And he messed up God's example. And that was so serious. In other words, the principle of receiving from God by speaking God's word. No matter what things look like, no matter how things feel. That principle is so important to the life of God's people under the new covenant, that it cost Moses his opportunity to go into the promised land. So Moses is telling Israel all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, here's what you can expect and here's what God has said to you. He's been speaking for God for over 40 years at that point in time. And so he lays out in no uncertain terms in very specific ways what God's will is and what they can expect when they go into the promised land. Now, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Let's look at four witnesses, and there's a lot more that we could choose from. 
Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 11. It says, Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments. This is Moses speaking to Israel again. Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken unto these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep thee, keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. He's talking about the covenant that he made with Abraham. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your corn and your wine and your oil, the increase of thy kind or cattle, and the flocks of thy sheep, in the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 1, all the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which, which the Lord swear unto your fathers. Notice that everything that we're reading is contingent on keeping the word, obeying the word of God. Verse 2, and thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart. Folks, hard places are the times where it reveals what's really in our heart. Nobody enjoys trouble. Nobody enjoys affliction or difficulty or adversity. But that's the time where you find what you're made of. Thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. And thou shalt also consider in thy heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord chasteneth thee. Now, folks, I want you to stop for a second and think about this word chasten. It's used in a lot of different ways, and most everybody thinks that chastening first and foremost means punishment. And it can be used to signify punishment. But think of it like this. When a couple has a new baby, when that baby is born, dad's not thinking, oh, boy, now I've got somebody to punish. But he is thinking about all the things he wants to teach him. Chastening is the instruction of the Lord. There may be times where we get ourselves in trouble and it looks like punishment or feels like punishment. But the instruction of the Lord, according to what Paul wrote Timothy, he said the word of God is profitable for instruction, for chastening. God teaches us through his word and only through his word. He doesn't teach us through adversity. He doesn't teach us through sickness and disease. He doesn't teach us through tragedy and hardship. Now, there are things to learn in the middle of those experiences. We can learn that God is faithful. And if we act on his word and keep his word in times of trouble, we'll find that he's faithful. It'll create a confidence in us that'll prepare us for the next trouble that comes. 
but it's not God bringing the trouble. It's not him making things go bad or taking the life of a loved one or some other tragedy. God instructs us through his word. And the word of God tells us clearly that we're going to have trouble here on the earth. You can't believe your way out of that, but you sure can believe God through it. Amen. Therefore, verse 6, Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and depths that spring up out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou may eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he has given thee. Here's the warning. All that previous or up to this point is telling us about the blessings. This is the land that God wants us to have. This is the type of life God wants us to enjoy. Now, folks, if you've got all those things going for you in the verses that we just read, the verses of prosperity and the blessings of the promised land. If you've got all those things going for you, how much time are you going to spend worrying about money? Jesus talked about not taking thought about the things that we need, what we'll wear, what we'll eat, and so forth. God doesn't want us worried. He doesn't want us to worry if it looks like we don't have enough. And he sure doesn't want us to worry if it looks like we have more than we need. He doesn't want us to worry about it at all. He said he'd take care of these things. He said he'd bring us into a land that would provide for us like this. And here's the one and only caution that he gives them. And remember, this is an example to us too. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day. If you do, if you forget God, there's a penalty. Here's the penalty. Lest when thou hast eaten and are full, and hast built goodly houses, and dwell therein, which means God doesn't have a problem with either of those things. He doesn't have a problem with you having more than enough, and living in a goodly house. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiplied, he must be okay with that too. The herds and the flocks multiplying is a part of the blessing of obedience to his word. It's just going to happen. You obey the word and it's just going to happen. When thy herds and thy flocks are multiplied and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, God has to be okay with that as well. And all that you have is multiplied. Sounds like he's talking about abundance. Then thy heart be lifted up and thou forget the Lord thy God which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led thee through thy great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought where there was no water who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint. That was the rock that Moses struck. Who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee and he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. What was manna all about? Manna was about the children of Israel finding out, experiencing for 40 years that God could provide for you in a wilderness that would not produce any good for their sake. See, a lot of people think that God's at work only when things are easy. 
But you're learning the hard places, as we said before. You're learning the hard places just how faithful God is. The wilderness was a place where it looked like there was no way, and God proved to him day after day after day after day that he had a way. So here's the, here's the warning, verse 17. Be careful that you don't say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Now notice that God's the one that gives us power to get wealth. God gives us power to get wealth. I think a lot of times, I, I remember a time many years ago where I thought some of these same type of things. I thought it was just me. I didn't think that other people thought like this too. But it seems to me, having a lot more experience than I used to have, it seems to me that most people look at that power to get wealth and they interpret that or imagine that to be something like God's going to show you how to make good investments or God's going to make you a stock market whiz. Or God's going to show you, reveal to you some way, somehow, for wealth to come into our hands through the ways of the world. But folks, the power to get wealth is just the power of faith. Did you notice the things that we read where it said, if you'll obey the word, if you'll keep the commandments of God, then all these things will take place for you. Your silver and gold will be multiplied. You'll be able to build goodly houses etc etc the only way that we can receive anything from God is by faith it is the means whereby we partake of whatever God's will for us is as outlined in the scriptures the power to get wealth is the power of faith and notice why he gives you the power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which you swear unto your fathers in other words so that the blessing of Abraham would come to pass for you See, it's real easy for some people to look at these Old Testament scriptures and say, well, that's for the Jews. Well, it never was for the Jews. It was for Abraham. The Jews were just his descendants. And so the blessing was Abraham's blessing. That's why it talks about the covenant that he swore for his father, swear unto their fathers. Now, where he says, as it is this day, he's simply saying that covenant's still in, fact, in uh, force, in effect, now. Just like it was when God spoke it to Abraham. When God first gave the promises to Abraham of blessing. Remember in Genesis chapter 12. God told Abraham, leave your father's country and go where I tell you to go. And I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you shall be a blessing. Chapter 13, we don't know how long it took. But chapter 13 says that Abraham was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. God made him rich in silver and cattle and gold. Just like he promised Israel. That he might establish his covenant. Now, folks, I know there's a lot of room for criticism when you start taking these things apart and identifying them. But I'm not going to let a little potential for criticism rob me of what the Bible says is mine. Are you? I don't care if anybody criticizes me. If the trade is making people happy or having them criticize you, based on whether or not you get God's promises to, uh, to work in your life. I'll take the promises of God and let anybody say what they want. So he gives you the, promise, uh, the power to get wealth. 
the power to get wealth. The power to get wealth. God doesn't have a problem with his people being rich. We looked some weeks ago at the, the rich young ruler, the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Here's a guy that's well-respected, very wealthy. He comes to Jesus and he says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus turns him to the word. He begins quoting some of the commandments. The rich young ruler says, all these have I kept from my youth up. Well, I wonder if that's why he's rich. The Bible says if you keep the commandments of God, it'll make you rich. Here's a rich guy that says, I've kept the commandments of God. What a coincidence. Jesus says there's one thing you lack. The only thing you don't have is treasure in heaven. And the only way you can get treasure in heaven is by giving what you have to others. As a sign of trust in God. He didn't tell the rich young ruler to make himself poverty stricken. He's telling the rich young ruler he needs to learn to trust God in the area of finances. Now he certainly understands keeping the, the promises of God or keeping the commandments of God will make you rich and make you wealthy. He's got some experience and he certainly is operating successfully on that side. But he doesn't seem to have faith in God to provide finances outside of what his own hand has brought into his life. In other words, he doesn't recognize that God was the source of the wealth that he already has. So he thinks that Jesus telling him to give, sell what he has and give to the poor is an attempt for God to take away what he has. What he doesn't seem to know and certainly doesn't exercise his faith toward is the fact that the Bible says when you give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord and the Lord will repay you. So Jesus, knowing full well what the Bible says, is not trying to get him to get rid of what he has. He's trying to show him to trust God when it looks like you don't have enough. And that's how treasure in heaven becomes yours. So God gives you the power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant. There's something, and I'll let you decide what it is for yourself, but there's something about the riches of this world coming into the hands of the children of God that proves God's covenant. Now, to whatever measure you wish, whatever importance you want to attach to that, that's up to you. But the Bible says, Old Testament and New Testament, the Bible says that financial and material well-being that God brings into our hands through obedience to his word, through believing what he said and what he claimed to be true, that shows his faithfulness to Abraham. When the rich young ruler turned away and went away sad or sorrowful, the Bible says because he had great possessions, as I say almost every time we get to that place, I think the Bible should have said great possessions had him. That would have been the only reason why he would not have been willing to do what Jesus said. He was afraid of letting go. And remember, Jesus said that that was evidence of the fact that he didn't have treasure in heaven. God doesn't have a problem with people having treasure on the earth. He just wants to make sure that's not where our only treasure is. So the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, or they had him, as I said. And Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that the disciples were astonished. 
And they said, who then can be saved? Right or wrong, you decide for yourself. They were of the understanding that rich people should make up the people of God, that all of the people of God should be rich. And therefore, who can be saved if you're saying that a rich man can't enter into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus clarifies it a little bit. And he said, how hard it is for they that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But then it says again that they were astonished out of measure. They were astonished out of measure. Jesus' disciples thought rich people was part of God's plan. Being rich was part of God's will and his purpose. Well, it certainly seems to indicate that from the scriptures we're reading in the Old Testament. I know the church has taught poverty for so long that it's hard for us to comprehend some of these things. But again, that we're going to have to decide are we going to accept the truth of the word or some contradicting thought or idea or tradition of man to decide what we're going to believe. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Beginning in verse 8, Therefore shall you keep all the commandments which I command you this day that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whether you go to possess it and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed, a land that floweth with milk and honey. For the land whether thou goest to possess it is not as the land of Egypt from whence you came out, where you sowed your seed and watered it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. But the land whether you go to possess it is the land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven, a land which the Lord thy God careth for. Folks, I want you to understand this. This is not just talking about the geographic boundaries of Israel. God cares about the land that you live in. God cares about the place where you live, where he's put you. He cares about your life. He cares about your circumstances. He cares about your well-being. He cares about how much money you have. If he only cared about Israel and not about us, then that makes him a respecter of persons and it makes the Bible a lie. A land which the Lord thy God careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year even unto the end of the year. And it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves, and that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain, and the land yield not her fruit, lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. There's a consequence for not obeying the word. Therefore shall you lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thy house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thy house and upon thy gates that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven on the earth. 
God wants our earthly existence to be like days of heaven. God wants our earthly existence, our earthly lives, to be just as joyful, just as productive as our days will be in heaven. Now, we won't have anything to worry about in heaven, will we? We know there's no sickness in heaven. We know God has streets of gold in heaven. I think that's amusing. That what the most precious thing, the material that represents all wealth on the earth is what God uses for asphalt. That's got to mean something, folks. It's got to mean something. Finally, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. When I said finally, I didn't mean I'm quitting here. <laughs> there's faith and there's foolishness and there's presumption. You understand <laughs> Verse 1, and it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all of his commandments which I command thee this day that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Folks, let me make a comment here. He didn't say some of you will be blessed in the city and others of you will be blessed in the field. God expects the blessings that he makes available for his people to be yours and mine in their entirety. He says there'll be blessings coming at you from every direction. Verse 2, all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake you. Don't worry, they'll catch you. They may come from behind you and from unexpected sources. And I think the, the picture here is that we're not to keep our eyes on the blessings. They shouldn't be out in front of us. What should be out in front of us is whatever God has given us to do to benefit mankind. And in that process, these things catch up from us from behind, catch up to us from behind. All these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of your body, in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of your ground, in the land which the Lord swear unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven, to give rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. 
and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If, thou, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them, and thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. As we've said before, the Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. One of the things that I've done, purpose to do, and I think I'm going to continue on it, is to read these scriptures over and over and over again. Because we need to build our faith for finances. We need to build our faith for the blessings of God. Now the Bible also says, in Psalm 105, it tells about God bringing Israel out of Egypt. The Red Sea experience that we've already discussed a little bit, or mentioned at least. And the Bible says that God brought Israel forth. Now this is two to seven million people, depending on whose estimates you accept. It says God brought Israel out of Egypt with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble or sickly person among them. Now if the parting of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Red Sea experience is an example of anything. The Bible tells us specifically what it is an example of. It's a type, an Old Testament type of salvation. Egypt represents the world. The crossing of the Red Sea represents Jesus laying down his life for us. And the coming out on the other side represents salvation. Now, folks, knowing that that's the example and the type that God established, man didn't attach this meaning to it. God did. Recognizing that God is performing a work against Egypt for the benefit of the children of Israel, that is a type of salvation. Look at what God considers to be the circumstances or the benefits of salvation. He brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. Now, a lot of the church world seems to think that God brought them forth just by the skin of their teeth. But they forget that God, in the middle of all this stuff, all the things that were going on, the Passover, the death of the firstborn, all these plagues that were taking place, God, right in the middle of it, told Israel to go get the stuff that's due you for these years you spent in bondage and in slavery. And the Bible says that the children of Israel spoiled the Egyptians. They came forth with great wealth. They came forth with divine healing. And that's a type of the salvation experience that the Bible uses to instruct us. Now, as I said, a lot of people will just say, well, that belongs to the Jews. That's just the Old Testament promise for the Jews. But I wonder if people have ever read the book of Galatians that say that. Look in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, everything that we've been reading in the Old Testament, all the blessings that are there are contingent upon obedience to the word. And there's a curse 
that's on the reverse side. We didn't spend much time talking about the curse or reading scriptures about the curse. But Moses goes into as much detail about what's going to happen to you if you fail to keep the commandments of God and the, the, the curse of the terrible things that will take place, the circumstances that will arise because of their refusal to obey the word. That's called the curse of the law. Now here's Paul. Paul lived in the New Testament, didn't he? Here's Paul writing to a Gentile church, not a Jew, Jewish church, but to a Gentile church, or the Gentiles in the church at least. And he said, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So the curse that he's talking about, Christ redeeming us from, that redemption came through the, the hanging on the cross, the sacrifice that was made on the cross, right? Everybody understands that. Everybody believes that. Verse 14 tells us why he did it. That or so that, the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, the Gentiles he's talking to are New Testament Gentiles. I'm a New Testament Gentile. Many of us are. Probably most of us are. And the Bible says that Jesus died on the cross to redeem us from the curse of the law. So that the New Testament Gentiles could receive the blessing of Abraham. Now, the blessing of Abraham is the establishing of the covenant that we read about before. He's given us the power to get wealth, and he might establish his covenant. What does that mean? It means the blessing of Abraham. It means the blessing of Abraham. You go on further in that third chapter of Galatians to verse 29, and it makes it even more clear. It says, and if you be Christ." Then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That means everything that Moses is telling those people as recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, that belongs to each and every one of us, New Testament Gentiles. And Jesus died to make it so. He died to make it so. Now, how do we take hold of these things? By faith. You take hold of the healing power of God because Jesus shed his blood for our, to affect our he, healing for our physical bodies. You take hold of that by faith. Even if there's sickness in your body and everything about you and everything in the doctor is reported and diagnosed seems to indicate that sickness is, uh, that healing is the furthest thing from you. We take what God's word says and hold fast to it, plant it in our heart and speak it with our mouth. And the word of God brings to bear the power of God to drive out sickness and disease. Well, then wouldn't it work for prosperity the same way? Faith is the only way we can receive from God. So no matter what our bank book says, no matter what our circumstance is, no matter how many people we owe or how close we are to going under, we take what God's word says about prosperity. A lot of what we've looked at this morning included Believe it in our hearts and begin to say it with our mouths. Did you notice Psalm 35, verse 27, when we started off? Let them shout for joy that favor my righteous cause and let them say continually, say continually, say continually. Let the Lord be magnified, which delights in the prosperity of his servant. 
the Bible's telling us no matter what our finances look like, we ought to be speaking abundance continually. Speaking the blessing of God continually. But you know as well as I do that Israel messed up big time over and over and over again. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 gives us some information that I find very interesting. Because Malachi, Malachi was the last prophet of God until the 400 years of silence were ended. What I mean by that is there were 400 years where God never spoke to his, children, to his people whatsoever. The time between the Old Testament and the Gospels are called the 400 years of silence. But notice one of the last things God said through his prophet before everything goes quiet. Israel has disobeyed God. The curse of the law is certainly prevalent upon them. Their nation has been destroyed. They've been gathered up and conquered time after time after time. And God gives his people instruction. Malachi chapter 3 beginning in verse 6. He said, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, he says, you've disobeyed me for so long, you should be worthy of death. But because I'm always the same, I've kept you alive in spite of yourselves. And notice he says he doesn't change in relation to the fix that he gives the children of Israel concerning this curse. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. He's simply saying, I've got a blessing or covenant with Abraham that I have to enforce. Even from the days of your fathers, you are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But you said, wherein shall we return? Now, I want you to notice what the people's attitude is. God, through Malachi, is identifying the thinking of the people. First thing they think is, we haven't done God wrong. They're not keeping the commandments. They're not honoring what Moses decreed to them time after time after time after time. But they seem to have forgotten about God altogether. And as a result, that's why the curse is upon them. Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? How have we done anything wrong to God? Well, the answer God gives them is in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now, folks, I want you to realize something here. This is the fix that God gives the people to get them out from under the curse. There is no other importance we can attach to these scriptures, the ones that we've already read and the ones that we'll continue to read as we go further down into the chapter. Other than, here's God's fix for your finances. Now, if everything in the Old Testament is an example to us, then we need to take heed. We need to recognize how this might apply to us. 
the fix he gives them is to bring your tithes into the storehouse. Verse 10, bring all the tithe into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. That would indicate that that's what's going on at the present time, wouldn't it? If it wasn't, why is he telling them about rebuking the devourer? So whereas the Old Testament promise was, if you'll keep the commandments, blessed shall be the fruit of your ground, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your flocks, and so forth. They seem to be in a place where the ground's not producing anything for them. They seem to be in circumstances where the Old Testament promises are not a reality in their lives because they haven't kept the commandments. Well, what's the fix for that? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Verse 12, and all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Look at what the tithe will make their land to be. It will return their land to a delightsome land rather than a barren place where the curse is in effect. Verse 13, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Now, folks, again, if the power to get wealth is the power of faith, which it has to be. It's the only way you can receive anything from God. Then what we say has a lot to do with what we have. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Folks, notice the deception here. Israel doesn't even know that they're doing the things that are creating their own demise. They're not upset that God says that they should return because they don't think they've gone anywhere. They don't think that they've robbed God. And how deceived do you have to be for that? Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Here's what they said. You have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Now, folks, let me point something out to you. Bringing your tithes into the storehouse, God said, would bring about the result of a window of heaven blessing that has to go beyond money. There's no way you could have enough money or more money than you're able to receive. The bank has never called anybody and said, I'm sorry, we can't take any more money from you. So it's got to be a blessing that goes beyond just finances. In other words, the tithe, acting on and believing and obeying God concerning the tithe has to bring about a blessing that goes further than just money in order to qualify for what God said it would be, a blessing that there's not room enough to receive. 
But here they're saying things that are bringing about their own destruction. And they're too deceived to even know what they're doing. Here's what that means. It means that the children of Israel are living pitifully below the level that God wanted them to live when it comes to finances and economics. Through their own actions, they're living pitifully below what God wants them to have. Now, we looked also, we won't take the time to look at it this morning, but let me refer you to Genesis chapter 14. That's where the tithe began. A lot of people say tithe is part of the Old Testament law, but Abraham instituted tithing before the law was ever given. Moses was several hundred years later when the law was given. So tithing, even though it was incorporated into Old Testament law, it did not begin or end with the law. It began when Abraham and Lot, Lot was his nephew, they had already parted ways because the substance that they had was too great for the land to contain them. So Lot went one direction. He wound up in the city of Sodom. Not a real good choice. But when Abraham heard that the city of Sodom had been sacked and his nephew Lot and all of his family and their possessions had been taken by this enemy king, I'm not sure how to say his name, but it looks a lot like Cheddar. Cheddar Leomer or something. And so in order to keep you from having an opportunity to laugh at me every time I say it, let's just call him King Cheddar. <laughs> Abraham took 318 servants in his own house. This guy has a substantial family operation going. He took 318 servants from his own house. And he delivered Lot and brought back all the stuff that had been stolen and taken from the city of Sodom. Now, when he gets back, the king of Sodom says, you take all the stuff and give me the people. And Abraham answered him, giving us significant information, important information. Abraham says, I don't want even a shoestring from you. I don't want you to have the opportunity to say that you made me rich. Well, that tells us several things. It tells us, first of all, that Abraham was very rich. And it also tells us that his relationship with God was more important to him than the money. Now, I don't know, and I don't know that there's any way to prove it one way or the other. But I tend to think that I doubt, really, that God was more important to Abraham than the possessions when it first started off. But over walking with God for a number of years and seeing God make good on the promise that God had made to Abraham, he comes to the point where the money doesn't mean anything to him. But the relationship that he has with God means everything. And then Melchizedek shows up on the scene doesn't tell us, the Bible doesn't tell us too much about him. We don't know exactly who he was. There's a liter literal way we can take what the Bible says about him or a figurative way. And really, I'm not sure which is which. But this was either somebody that we don't know who he was or it was Jesus before he was, came to the earth as a man. Whoever it was, Abraham recognized that he was greater than him. 
Now, folks, here's an earth at that time. Here's an earth where God has a covenant with one man, Abraham. That would make him the greatest man in the earth in that respect. There's nobody else on the planet that God has a covenant with. That puts him pretty high on the list, doesn't it? But Melchizedek was greater than him. I tend to think it was Jesus performing a, a service on the earth, not only for benefit, uh, the benefit of Abraham, but also for us. The Bible says that Abraham gave him tithes of all. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, Paul goes into some detail in the New Testament about the lesser can only be blessed by a greater. His point is, if Abraham was greater than Melchizedek, and as I said, he's the only person on the planet that has a covenant relationship with God. Who could be greater than him? Well, Melchizedek was. Because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Blessed be Abraham. By the creator of the universe. You can't find anywhere in the Bible where Abraham was commanded to tithe. I think one of the important things about the tithe, one of the things that makes the, the tithe so important to God. And the Bible says the tithe is holy. The tithe belongs to God. The reason for that, in my opinion, is because Abraham did it on his own accord. Not because he was commanded of God to do it, but to honor God for what God had brought into his life. If you read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it says it that way. It says, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your increase. Well, that has to be the tithe. Tithe is the first fruit of your increase. Then it goes on and tells the blessing in verse 10. So shall your barns be filled with plenty and your presses burst forth with new wine. I believe Abraham is the one that started honoring God with the tithe. And it became so acceptable unto God. The relationship with Abraham, in spite of the money, in spite of the blessing, in spite of the wealth that God had given him, the relationship that Abraham had with God was paramount. He gave tithes unto God because he wanted to. He gave tithes unto God as a, a sacrifice to show God exactly the opposite of what we saw with the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler wasn't willing to honor God in the way that Jesus told him to. And he lacked treasure in heaven. Abraham, on the other hand, had his treasure in heaven because of what he was willing to provide and give to Melchizedek. Let me give you some numbers. These are 2018 numbers. The population of America in 2018 has been calculated to be 327.2 million people. Of those 327.2 million people, 
247 of million identify themselves as Christians. Do the math and you'll find out the Christians make up by people's own admission, by their claim. This is people that call themselves Christians. That's 75% of the population. Now let me take a little side journey here for just a minute. 75% is the biggest base that anybody could ever conceive. And if the church worked together in unison based on something simple like, oh, I don't know, maybe the Bible, we could control the politics of the land. We could control the social engineering experiments that are being taken, that have been taking place for a long time that end up in this gender identity stupidity, this transgenderization stuff. Everything that's wrong with the country, we could fix if we just worked together. But the devil's in control of the world system because he's been able to divide the church. I don't see that ending anytime. But I want you to know what the numbers are. So we've got 75% of the population in America that claim to be Christians, 247 million. You know how many of those Christians tithe? 1.5 million. Do the math, you'll find that it's just above one half of 1% of the Christian population in the country. 1.5 million out of 247 million. That means, just like as we read in Malachi chapter 3, that means 99.4% of the church, of the Christians that make up this mass of people in America, are living pitifully below the economic standard that God has provided for us through the work of Jesus. Pitifully below. Here's something else you might be interested in. Of those 1.5 million people that make up just over one half of 1%, 28% of those are debt-free. Eight out of 10 of those have no credit card debt. So even with the pitifully low numbers concerning the tithe, you still have financial blessings that are operating to prove God's word to be true. Now, folks, I don't believe the numbers are even that strong. And here's why. I was taught, brought up in a denominational church. I was taught tithing in Sunday school for years as a kid. They'd give you these boxes of envelopes that had numbers on them. Remember those? Any of you ever heard of those? And they were intended to provide you with something that you could develop a habit concerning your giving or your tithing. When I grew up hearing about the tithe, I heard that it belonged to God. I heard that it was holy. I even remember hearing that if you're going to redeem any of your tithes, 
it carries a 20% penalty. But I never heard about the window of heaven blessing. We were tithing not because we expected God to perform his word. We were tithing because we were taught that it was what we were supposed to do. I never heard anything in that church. And I was in that church for 15 years. I never heard any that, anything from that church about the blessings of God. I never heard anything about the, I'm talking about concerning the tithe. Never heard that the devourer would be rebuked. Never heard about the window of heaven blessing. And here's the only reason that I say that. I think there's a lot of those 1.5 million people in America, Christians in America that are tithing, that aren't looking for the blessing. And remember what we've read. We've seen over and over again. Here in Malachi is a good example. The people were speaking against him. The people were speaking against God. They were saying it doesn't do any good to worship God. It doesn't do any good to bring offerings or sacrifices unto God. Because the wicked are getting better, getting better results and living better lives than we are. There was a lot of that in the church that I was in. So here, God has given instruction. He's given a financial fix to anybody that's in trouble. And even the fix that some people are operating in. They're not even mixing faith with what they're doing. And folks, it's not, tithing is not a formula. Tithing is not something, tithing or giving either one. It's not something that if you give by Sunday evening, then by the next Friday, you'll have a return on your gift. See, if God's return, if the window of heaven blessing was a formula, then banks would be bringing their money to the church. They'd be investing in the church. But it doesn't work like that. God doesn't settle up every first of the month. God doesn't pay on the first and the 15th. Now let's make this personal. If half of 1%, little more than half of 1% nationally across the country are tithing, what about us? We really don't have any way to figure it out. We don't know what anybody makes. We don't even know how many people we should be comparing the number with. So for that reason, I want everybody to take out a piece of paper and a pen, write your name and your annual income out for me. <laughs> That's the way the Mormons do it. <laughs> the Mormons assess you. We don't know who's doing what. We don't have any way to figure it out. We can identify what the median income is for our area, which, by the way, is 90 grand, $90,000. But there are people that are living here in this area that don't make $90,000. And if we took the tithe off of the $90,000, just the $9,000 amount, that might give an indication on average of who's doing what. But there's a lot of people that make less than that 90 grand 
that are tithing. So they'd be left out of that equation. So we've tried to identify how many of us there are. Several years ago, which is the most recent thing that we did, and the, and the, way that, uh, the reason that we haven't done it in the last several years is because we don't know how accurate it is. But a couple of years ago, we came up with a, um, a way, well, we attempted to find out how many of us there are. And we found out at the time that there were a, a little more than 1,200 giving units to our church. That means families. Now, we've never had 1,200 people in any of our services. So we don't know how really to count. Banks always want to know how we're doing when they look at our loan history and all that kind of stuff. And, and honest to goodness, we don't know what to tell them. We can tell them what our attendance is. But there are a lot more people that consider us to be their home church than the people that attend. So all I'm trying to tell you is it's real difficult for us to come up with any solid numbers or statistics that we can work from. But based on that, I've come to the place where I estimate the tithing population of our church to be about 15, maybe 20% of the people that attend. Now, I'd like for it to be a lot more. I'd like for it to be a lot more for your sake, not for mine. When Paul was talking to the church, writing to the church about finances, he was encouraging churches that had given missions offerings for other churches, other places that were impoverished. But Paul makes a statement when he's telling people about what they should do and what would honor God and how to help. He says, I don't want, this. I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to give because I desire a gift. But I desire for fruit to abound to your account. Now, I know the first thing the devil will do is speak in somebody's ear and say, well, there's Pastor Mike. He's just trying to get more money for the church. You need to know something about this church. This church is off everybody's chart concerning giving. This church operates at a surplus, not a deficit. And when the banks see our attendance numbers and compare that to the money that's coming in, they think either we're the best things that slice bread or other churches are really doing wrong stuff. But assuming that we're correct just for a, a few moments, if 15 to 20% of the people of our church tithe, that means 85, 80 to 85% of the people that come to this church that love God. You don't come to this church unless you love God and love his word because that's all we got. We're not going to impress you with our sterling personalities. <laughs> we're not going to impress you with our programs. We're certainly not the Disneyland of the body of Christ. <laughs> so of the 80 to 85% of people that come to this church loving God and loving his word, 80 to 85% of our population, our church population, is living pitifully below 
what God intends for them. I think that should be fixed. We're not looking for another offering. We're not looking to raise money for a special project. I don't have a special project. I'm looking for people to live up to what God has for them. And I can honestly say before God, that's my only intent. That's the only thing I care about. God's idea of the promised land is a land where there's an abundant supply, where all the blessings of God overtake us, a land wherein we may eat without scarceness, a land that's watered by the rains of heaven. God's idea, as identified in the Old Covenant through the crossing of the Red Sea, even as we read earlier in the service, he brought them forth with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble among them. That same thing seems to be true in the New Testament. Because John said in the third letter that he wrote to the church, it's only one chapter, it's the second verse. He said, I wish or I pray above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. So the Old Testament work of God that brought them forth out of Egypt with healing and with substance is the very thing the Holy Spirit impressed John to say to the church that God still wants for us. That we would prosper and be in health even as our soul prospers. I want you to think about some of this stuff, folks. And let me make another couple of comments about Malachi chapter 3. The people of Israel had failed to tithe for some period of time. We don't know how long. But it was certainly long enough for the curse to take effect. Now the fix, the financial fix that God gave them was bring all the tithe into the storehouse. He didn't say go back and try to figure out what you owe me and clear up your past mistakes he said start from where you are now well if they've been living in a land that's cursed and if the land is dry and barren they don't have much to give and so the financial fix 10 percent of nothing is pretty much nothing so the financial fix was very simply start where you are and bring the tithes to the storehouse Over the years, I've had people come to me and see what they should be doing or God started dealing with their heart about paying their tithes. And they were all concerned about what they had or hadn't done in the past and all that kind of stuff. And my advice has always been what I just told you based on Malachi chapter 3. Start where you are. But don't just drop money in the bucket. Begin to speak what God's word says. Begin to say continually, let the Lord be magnified. 
which delights in the prosperity of his servant. Folks, if God was really serious about this window of heaven stuff, then that means his plan is to increase us exponentially. He keeps talking about multiplying you, not just adding to you, but multiplying. The lowest multiplier that really makes a difference is two. So the least that God would do is double you. How many of you like your finances to be doubled? That's the low bar. If what God said was true. You understand what I mean by that? God's got a lot bigger plans for you than you and I have even thought about. But we're going to have to use the power to get wealth which is the power of faith. We're going to have to start saying what God's word says about us and our finances. It may not happen overnight. Now, if you, if you start off with this, just trying to make something work and give up on it, if you don't see results by the end of the week, you're probably not going to see results. But if you go into this because of your desire to honor God, determined and set your face to do what is the right thing to do no matter what you'll see God do things for you that you never imagined amen let's pray father we magnify your holy name we thank you for your goodness and your mercy you know our hearts lord you see where we are there are people in this room that are in dire financial straits. Your word says time and time again, you lift the poor out of the dust. There are others that you've been dealing with their hearts about honoring you with the tithe. Lord, I pray strength for them. That even though they might fear not having enough if they obey you, I thank you for showing them that you're bigger than any bill. You care more for them and their well-being than any circumstance or consequence that they might be afraid of. Lord, I pray that everybody in this church, everybody that listens to us or watches us online or on TV, would be quickened in their heart by the Spirit of God to become a doer of your word in their finances. Father, we thank you for opening the windows of heaven to us and pouring out a blessing upon us that there's not room enough to receive. We thank you for rebuking the devourer for our sake. The only place in the Bible that you said you'd do something about the devil is concerning our finances. We thank you that as we give, it's given back to us. 
Father, prosper us in such measure, even as you did Abraham. And we purpose that our relationship with you will always mean more than whatever money or resources you bring into our hands. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Can you agree with that prayer? Amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand. We're going to spend a few minutes praying in the auditorium as we dismiss the service. So we're going to ask if you're not going to.